Did you watch any of the recent Olympic Games? Just curious. I usually do. In fact, one of the memories of my growing up was tuning into the games every four years, both summer and winter, and watching them almost beginning to end. But I have to admit, I took a pass this time. It just seemed too strange, I guess, to see people competing and no one really watching. But I've always admired the commitment and dedication of these athletes. Most of them start their craft at a very young age, and they, their pursuit involves all of their energy as well as that of their family. Now, Simone Biles showed us this year what happens when that pressure just gets to be too much, when they're in the public eye, which is just too intense. But for most, I think, especially those who aren't in the public eye as much, there's a great reward in pursuing a goal with that kind of commitment. In college, one of my study partners was an Olympic speed skater. She held the world record in one of the events at the time I knew her. And she went on to skate in four Winter Olympics. Now, my job in this particular class with her was to help keep her current, because she was gone so much of the time. And um, I have to say that, that um, it was <laughs> I did a lot of her work for her. and. Um, <laughs> She got, she got an A in the class, and I got a B. And I asked the professor about that. He said, well, I expected more of you. I said, well, you got more of me twice over. <laughs> I hope Nancy's not watching this. She's still around the area teaching. You know, she did have a life outside of skating, but for the most part, that was it, speed skating. And she didn't do it because she was forced to or for someone else's benefit, it was because she loved it. It was a source of joy for her life. Her desire was to skate. You know that line from the, the movie, I don't know if it was ever, he might have said it, but when I run, I feel God's pleasure. That's that sense of this was, this was her desire. Now in preaching, it's usual to focus on one of the passages. And then, you know, kind of work that a little bit. If there are insights from the others to kind of bring that in. That's the way seminaries teach that. It's really the only way you can do what's called expository preaching. Um, but I don't, sometimes I do my own thing. So um, I think there's something about when the, these four scriptures that are read, and we, we do four every week, that they speak to each other. You kind of listen to them together. And that's what I did this week. I just spent time at the intersection of those passages. And sometimes when that, when that happens, there's a theme or insights, truth that emerge that sort of link them as they speak together, Scripture to Scripture. And today I think we do have that. It relates to the kind of commitment that we're willing to make to live the Christian life. Is following Christ the purpose of our lives? Is it the one thing, as a friend of mine says, or is it just one among many interests that we might have? Where does real commitment come from? This kind of commitment. How can we know it? How can we live it? How can we live it in ways that are life-giving and joyful rather than the kind of heavy sort of judgmental expectation that some of us have known in the church? We're here in this place today, and you're tuned in today because it means something to us, to you. We want to know the vibrant, 
encouraging, meaningful experience of being a Christian, of following Jesus, yet we know this isn't always our experience. Sometimes when these passages are preached, such as Joshua's call to choose, or Paul's teaching on the armor of God, I've been left with a sense that I'm just not trying hard enough. You ever feel that way? I just need to buckle down, I just need to get with it. But I have to say, living the life of Jesus is not about trying harder. Because it's not something that we do in our own strength. So this morning, let's hear the invitation to choose and to know and to love God, not out of heavy obligation, but out of the Father's love for us, who longs for us to know his goodness in our lives and who says to us, love me as I love you with all my heart. So where does this kind of commitment come from? Where can we find it? I think there are many answers to this, but I have three today that came to me out of these passages. It comes from gratitude in knowing God's goodness. It flows from our desire. Where do we long to be? How do we long to be? And in the end, commitment is God's gift to us. It's not something we generate. Okay, so that's where we're going today. Um, I'm trying to lay it out there. Gratitude is a source of our commitment. Desire, where is our heart? What do we love? And thirdly, really, God makes it possible anyway for us to do this. Joshua calls the people to make a choice. Choose to serve God fully or choose some other path, other gods, but you, you, you must choose. Now, it's interesting here uh, that it appears the people of God have a variety of religious practices. They have their God, Yahweh, who they're getting to know, who has delivered them, but they also have these deities that they picked up along the way that go back to the, the time of Abraham and certainly things that they picked up in Egypt. And they can't continue to live in this kind of syncretistic uh, life and experience. The people have completed their time in the desert. They've entered, they've settled in the promised land. They've known the Lord's goodness. And so before he dies, and this is right at the end of the book of Joshua, he challenges them to get serious about their relationship with God. The way he does this is to rehearse the story of their deliverance from Egypt and God's provision for them in the desert and their journey to the promised land. He tells them the story again. He reminds them. From Abraham to the present moment, he speaks a word from God, and he concludes with verse 13 uh, before he makes his challenge. This is speaking for God. I gave you a land on which you had not labored, cities which you had not built. You eat the fruit of vineyards and olive yards which you did not plant. Therefore, fear the Lord. Serve him in sincerity and faithfulness. Choose him alone. And the people agree. They make covenant to do so. Even though if you read further, Joshua really doesn't believe them. <laughs> He's like, I don't think you can do this. And they say, no, 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 we will. It's their response to the reality of their situation that God has been generous and good and faithful. So we will be as well. Remembering the goodness of God is vital to how we live as God's people. And it's gratitude that all we have known is blessing in our lives leads us to the place of response, leads us to the place of surrender, where we can make commitment, where we can choose to press in more deeply to the life of faith. 
don't know if you've noticed, but each week in, in the worship, we do this, right? We recall God's faithfulness. You know, there's a great definition of worship that I like, and it's this. Worship is a celebration of God's mighty acts through Jesus Christ. In the Eucharistic prayer, that is the prayers around communion, we do what Joshua did. We tell the story again. And if you notice, uh, right after the, you know, lift up your hearts, we do that. We say, Lord, you made us for yourself, and, um, but we abandon you, we sinned, we walked away, and yet, in order to reconcile us to you, you sent your son. I mean, it's the story of God's goodness. And then we hear how Jesus set the Passover as the new meal that celebrates his gift to us. And then in response to that, what do we do? We come forward. We receive. We make the commitment each week to live our lives afresh for God. You know, it's good to recall God's goodness in our lives just as an exercise. To just take a moment or several moments <laughs> because we're so focused on the trials, aren't we? We're so focused on the difficulties of life. I am. We're focused on those things we're trying to, to overcome. But yet when we, when we recall God's blessing to us, we start it and then we start to see it more and more and more. There's that old gospel song. It's kind of a ditty, but I, you know, I, but I, I like the message of it, which is count your blessings. You know that one? Name them one by one. <laughs> count your many blessings. See what God has done. It's a good exercise. Commitment comes from gratitude for all that God has done, is doing, and will do. And then in response, how can we offer less to the Lord? A second place where we're able to make a commitment, where the, the, the commitment kind of you know, is generated, is from our desire. What are the things we really seek? What's important to us? And we stop to think about that. How we spend our time and our money is a pretty good indicator of where we're placing our value. Again, the motivation for making the commitment of our lives to follow Jesus is not about following rules or trying to stay out of trouble or making others happy. It's about ordering our desires toward the things that reflect the heart of God. In the section of John's Gospel we have today, the theme of Passover is really present throughout. Jesus has fed the 5,000. And then the conversation turns to eternal themes because, you know, people follow him because they want bread. And he says, no, it's not really bread you're after, not the kind of bread I just gave you. What you need is the bread of life. And he says, I am the bread of life, and you need to feed on me. Well, that offends the Jewish leaders, right? And it offends some of the followers as well. And many people abandoned Jesus at that time. And in the midst of that abandonment, he turns to the twelve, the closest ones he had, and he said, are you thinking of leaving? Peter says, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of life. I don't think we're hearing a systematic theological statement from Peter, even though it is that. We're hearing the desire of his heart. Lord, we want to follow you. Where else will we go? There is no other that has the truth. 
So Peter follows, he remains, he abides in John's words because he wants to. He's caught a glimmer, a glimpse of the reality of Jesus and the kingdom of God. And he says, this is where I want to be. This is what he longs for. Desire is the center of all our longings, isn't it? The things most important to us, the people that mean the most, the places where we go without having to be told to go there. That's what desire looks like. And we have desire in many different directions, and many of them can be good. It's just about placing them in proper relationship to one another. I appreciate Henri Nouwen's words about this, and I haven't quoted him for a little while, I want you to know in a sermon. <laughs> so, he says this, he says, Desire is often talked about as something we ought to overcome. Still, being is desiring. Our bodies, our minds, our hearts, and our souls are full of desires. Some are unruly, turbulent, very distracting. Some make us think deep thoughts and see great visions. Some teach us how to love. And some keep us searching for God. Our desire for God is the desire that should guide all other desires. Otherwise, our bodies, minds, hearts, and souls become one another's enemies, and our inner lives become chaotic, leading us to despair and self-destruction. Spiritual disciplines, he says, are not ways to eradicate all our desires, but ways to order them so that they can serve one another and together serve God. We can't make meaningful commitments to anything or anyone that's not an object of our heart's desire. We just won't go there. We can't do that. So ordering our desires is foundational to discipleship. What do we love? Who do we love? Peter's words are a heart cry. Where else can we go? This is where we choose to be. One of the questions that I engaged during my time of sabbatical was the question, what do you love? I actually took a, I took a number, uh, time to do this, a number of days with a, a legal pad and just began to write down the things that I love. You know, it sounds obvious to answer that, but if you get honest with yourself and consider your time, your energy, and financial commitments, you may be surprised. Pastor and counselor Wayne Muller says that what we love becomes the star that guides our path and lights our way. Simon Tugwell suggests that our desire for the God is the most fundamental appetite of all. It doesn't go away, but if we deny it, it will just go for something else. And that means, he says, we'll invest some creature or some creatures with the full burden of our need for God, a burden which no creature can carry. I'm thinking right now, just because I've had conversations recently with a number of younger people, I'm thinking about those who've been raised in the faith, who no longer see it as relevant or vital to their lives. And I think it's especially true, I mean, it happens at any age, but I think especially true among younger people right now. They're separated from Christian community. They're separated from meaningful relationship with God because other things have taken priority, which is drift or... Decisions, you know, sometimes if you don't choose, you're still choosing, right? Some people have called these the nuns, not like nuns and monks, but N-O-N-E-S. They have no, they have none, they have no relationship anymore. And it's true that so many younger people who grew up in Christian homes, went to Christian colleges, were immersed in vibrant faith along the way, have drifted. Now, to be fair, many have felt driven away by the church's hypocrisy, by 
the abuse that some leaders have carried out, by the lack of care for the poor, the the lack of desire to reconcile with those who are different, and what seems to be a controlling desire for political legitimacy in much of the church. And they're just, they're not having it anymore. Yet each of us still has the call in front of us to choose. We can't look at something and blame it. We just have to choose between us and God to name where our values are found. How do we shape desire? (laughs) If desire is something that is a little lukewarm, maybe. We all all have been at those places. Maybe we're there now. Proximity is important. You know, press in to God and to God's people. To be exposed to what God is doing. To be patient. To have a loving and caring community. Have openness and humility. These are things that, that can allow us to have that desire rekindled. What about our children and their life of faith? Are there things that can insulate them from drift? Well, you know, there are no guarantees. And as parents who are a little older, you'll be able to say that. You'll say, yeah. Because each person must ultimately make a choice. But I do know this. If they do not see authentic desire and faithfulness in us, they will not choose it for themselves. Our children need to know that this is their church. That they have a place They have opportunities to serve. They are valued and loved by God. They are known by the people of this parish. And there must be spiritual support for them as they grow. The kind of support that gives them room to question in safe ways. That's about desire. I'm not wrapping that up neatly. I'm just going to leave that with you like that. But in the end, this is the third point, our ability to choose commitment is a gift from God. We can't do this on our own, and thankfully, we don't have to. Paul says to the Ephesians, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. It's not something we conjure up. Uh, It's not something we grit our teeth in order to carry out. It's a gift to walk in. The provision has already been made. Now, certainly, there are choices that we make to follow that can seem really difficult, right? But there's grace for that, too. Jesus says in John, no one can declare allegiance unless the Father has enabled him to do so. In Matthew, Jesus commends Peter's confession. What does he say? He says, it was was revealed to you by God directly, Peter. Peter didn't connect the dots or figure out the puzzle. It was a gift. I grew up in a Christian subculture that was very loving, and and I'm really thankful for it, and there were many good things about it, but it tended to measure commitment to God through outward signs, mostly things we did not do, weren't allowed to do. Christian commitment and maturity was about keeping a set of rules, and granted, there is a way to live, to honor God, that will include limitations, as well as freedom. But I don't believe we hear enough that God has done the hard work of our response to him already. He has paved the way. We don't have to try harder. We just have to surrender more. What is your desire today? What is my desire? Is it to follow Jesus more closely? To be more like him? The world has never, well, there's always been this you know, terrible brokenness of the world, but right now as we look around us, the world needs communities of faith 
where this commitment is made and where it's shared among the people. And you know, it's not a one-time event. (laughs) We have to say yes over and over again and to choose the Lord. It's a great opportunity and responsibility. Choose you this day. Put on the armor of God. Lord, where else could we go? I think I've mentioned already, we have a new family member. His name's Wally. He's a little black lab, four months old. And we're in the middle of Wally training, <clears throat> which we're starting to feel is going to go on for a very long time. And the way you train, and some of you have done this, is basically you bribe Wally. So we use food. We use food to do that. So we're trying to get him to walk a certain way with us. We're trying to get him to go sit on the mat, you know, so he can kind of have a safe place. We're trying to get him to not bark so much, which is a way of rewarding when he's quiet. And you just, you just use food. You know, you take, to get him to walk with you, you take little treats in your hand and you place it right here and say, come on, Wally, come on. And he just follows your hand. We're doing the work. We're doing the work to make it possible for someday for him to choose. We do this with children, too. And I think it's what, we, what the Lord does for us. I'm not saying he bribes us. But I'm saying he pours out his goodness on us so that we will choose. Soon after the publication of John Stott's 1971 edition of Basic Christianity, he received this letter. It said, Dear John, thank you for writing Basic Christianity. It led me to make a new commitment of my life to Christ. I'm old now, nearly 78, but not too old to make a new beginning. I rejoice in the grand work that you're doing. Yours sincerely, Leslie Weatherhead. What you need to know is that Leslie Weatherhead was one of the most respected and influential Christian leaders in the United Kingdom. Thousands heard him preach at City Temple. His books were read widely. He pioneered the field of pastoral counseling. Yet at 78, he was not too proud, not too old, not too cold-hearted, not too worn out to make a fresh commitment of his life to Jesus. Maybe we need that today. Maybe I need that. Lord, open our hearts to respond to you. We thank you for your goodness. We thank you for all the gifts of this life. Lord, help us to choose you again and again where there are other things we could be choosing and often do. Lord, thank you that you love us. In Jesus' name, amen.